Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Our equity exposure is above average. However, the equity exposure, although it's above average, it is on average of a greater quality, higher quality, more global businesses you know, that we own in the portfolio today and that we have in the past. Where is this value-oriented, frequently contrarian manager investing now? Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. We have a treat for you this week, a rare interview with great investor Stephen Romick, founder and portfolio manager of the FPA Crescent Fund, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Now, very few funds have the distinction of surviving, let alone thriving, for three decades. As a matter of fact, only 31% of U.S. domestic equity funds last even 20 years, and only a few dozen managers have led the same fund for three decades. FBA Crescent has another distinction. It's lived up to its founding mandate to deliver equity-like returns with less than market risk and avoid permanent losses. Its nearly 10% annualized returns have almost matched the S&P 500s, but its volatility was considerably lower. Both reasons that Morningstar gives it a gold analyst rating and named it Morningstar's Allocation Fund Manager of the Year in 2013. Those are among the reasons we are devoting two WealthTrack episodes to Romic. The first is about current strategy, and the second, to run in a few weeks, will be devoted to the lessons he has learned over the last three decades, or half his life, as he put it in a keynote speech from Morningstar, and we'll provide a link to this speech on our website, WealthTrack.com. FBA Crescent is a go-anywhere, invest-in-anything balanced fund that will hold large amounts of cash if it can't find attractive values in stocks, bonds, or other assets. I ask Romick how the fund is positioned now. FBA Crescent today is, is, is got you know, low 70s of the portfolios is invested, the balance is in cash. Cash is not is a byproduct of our, of our process. It's a tool we use, you know, that, that we, we default to, not, we don't consciously say, we want to have X amount in cash. Right. If we have great opportunities, attractive risk rewards, we'll be, you know, much more invested. And so over time, that cash will, get that cash will flex. And, but by having that cash and being willing to stand on the sidelines, if we don't see the attractive risk rewards, it, it has protected capital in, in some of the worst downturns that we've seen over the last three decades. And, and a good manifestation of that shows up in in this in this one this one statistic that I'm going to share with you. It's a little bit reductive to kind of put 30 years of his, of an, of investment history, you know, as a manager into into you know one statistic. You know, but if you think about the maximum time to recover capital that was that was temporarily impaired, um, our maximum time to that high water mark has been 1.8 years, was the worst. So that means when the portfolio went down, to get back to the high watermark, the worst period we have is 1.8 years. 
And that's in part, you know, through, you know, stock selection, but a bit, a big reason for that is also, you know, not, you know, being fully invested, being in cash, you know, because we didn't see the attractive risk reward. So we were, we were right not to have been fully invested. I well, think that's, that's what that shows. Well, that's also remarkably fast uh, well, compared to like the S&P 500, for instance, which took several more years. Well, for over four more years, 6.1 years yeah. to be exact, or the, you know, uh, or, or even the balanced benchmark, you know, um, you know, the, the say 60% the S&P and, and 40%, you know, the Bloomberg, you know, ag, that was like three and a half years. So how do you explain that? What, so what, why is that? What, why did you recover so quickly? That's what I said, I was speaking to the cash, the cash was in the portfolio, minimized the downside. And then coming out the other side, we leaned in, you know, during the during the debacles that we've seen over time, you know, we've been able to lean in. You know, we leaned in in, in uh, into COVID. More recently, we leaned in. You know, last year, uh, we leaned in you know, in the financial crisis into distressed distressed debt, and so we got we pulled down cash, you know, and got more invested when opportunities were presented. The fact that you you're at nearly thirty percent cash now, seventy percent risk assets. What does that tell me about FBA Crescent's view of the opportunities in the market. It, it tells you that, you know, we are not so sanguine as to be more invested, that we believe there's going to be more better opportunities coming our way, you know, down the road. And that you're not so pessimistic that you're not in because it's 70 percent about average for you all. Over 30 years. So we're a little bit above average, uh-huh. um, but I mean, cash actually is an optimistic statement. It, you know, one could argue we're optimistic that we're going to be able to deploy that cash in the future. You know, okay. to put a to put an optimistic spin on it. Um, but within that 70% and change, there is a little bit of difference. We've not seen the same kind of opportunity in in high yield and distressed, and so we have more inequities than we've had in the past. So our high yield distressed component that you know, within the risk assets is lower, far lower than its historic average. And yes. our equity exposure is above average. However, the equity exposure, although it's above average, it is on average of a greater quality, higher quality, mm-hmm. more global businesses you know, that we own in the portfolio today and that we have in the past. Your aversion to, you know, to losing money, avoiding the permanent impairment of capital. So is quality something that's going to be is very important now? Is that what your assessment is? I think quality is always important. It always has been. Um, I think, as I said earlier on, I think I was a little bit slower to appreciate that. Right, because you've certainly done distressed debt, you've certainly done high yield in the past. And we hope to do it in the future. Uh, right now, the the covenant quality you know, of, these, of, 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 so, of so many of these higher yielding bonds is, is so poor. It's so covenant light that mm-hmm. the the balance of power is tilted towards the borrower, not the lender. When I when I make a loan to somebody and they don't perform, I want to get the keys to the kingdom. But I'm not they make it a lot harder today, you know, to get the keys. Stephen, for the seventh edition of the investment classic Graham and Dodd Security Analysis, you were asked to write an introduction to a chapter about your evolution as a value investor. How have you evolved? I think the largest theme within what I wrote in this chapter intro is really this idea of continuous learning, uh, this idea of being a value investor you know, means to focus on a margin of safety, trying to protect capital. And 
You aren't protecting capital if you buy something at a low PE or in a low price to book for a business that is going to disappear. I mean, Sears looked like a value investment and did not end up mm -hmm. you know, performing quite so well, as everybody knows. So the margin of safety earlier on in my career, having been schooled in the earlier, you know, you know, Graham and Dottian, you know, uh, mode of security analysis, which is protecting yourself with a balance sheet. So buying something below book, uh, book value or, or ha looking for hidden assets and being aware of, of hidden liabilities you know, might, that might be off balance sheet, contingent right. liabilities and such. And what I realized over time was that the value of the business was going to offer me, afford me great protection. So can you think of a company that you've owned recently uh, since that kind of revelation and that education as a value investor that you maybe would not have owned, uh, you know, 10 years ago? Probably wouldn't have bought a Netflix a couple of decades ago. Um, Google, we, we bought, you know, over a decade ago. We've held right. it since, but we probably wouldn't have held it as long as we've held it. Probably would have been a more uh, active seller, you know, than, than we have, have, have been. Uh, because the we are more willing to accept that this is this is a really a, a great business and and it's not without risk, you know we have to always you know examine you know the you know, KPIs the key performance indicators as to what could impact its business mm -hmm. and we're very mindful of that but we know we continue to hold that stock whereas you know 20 years ago we might we would have bought it look we bought Google in 2011 or so at at roughly net of cash you know uh, give or take 11 times earnings. And as it migrated higher in valuation, we, we could have, you know, 20 years ago, probably bought the same thing at 11 times earnings, the same business, but probably wouldn't have held it, or I wouldn't, I may not have held it. One of the things that you uh, mentioned in your Morningstar speech uh, as well is that you can get by with one thoughtful move every five years. <laughs> so what has been your thoughtful move over the last five years? You know, we, we um, in the last five years, we, we were not as exposed to, to um, a lot of these tech stocks that were very, very highly valued coming into, coming right. out of 21 into 22. We lagged, you know, terribly going into that, you know, versus a lot of growth funds and looked pretty good, you know, during it and, mm -hmm. and subsequently, you know, coming out of it. And if you look at the fund today, we actually... Um, you know, through the end of the quarter, anyway, through, because I don't know the numbers as of mid-month on August, of, but we were actually, you know, recovered to our high water mark and the market hadn't. And people who had owned these inflated tech stocks have, right. are, are still significantly underwater, many of them, if not most of them. And so that's one thing that we just, we managed, we, we managed to successfully avoid. Except uh, you just mentioned that, that you've owned, you know, Google for, 11 years. So but I framed it by saying inflated tech stocks. I don't think right, Google okay. got to that point of inflation. You look at some of these businesses, I don't want to, I don't want to pick on any one business, but there's a, there's one company I've in, in, in the you know, front of mind because it's, it's an industry of, a, you know, the same industry of the company we own. It's, you know, it's in the uh, used auto retailing business that, mm -hmm. you know, the stock, you know, you know, it looked, you know, looked at it at 30 bucks, didn't buy it, 50 bucks, didn't buy it. 100 bucks didn't buy, it went to 350 or so, and they went all the way back down to single digits. And 
And we this looked is it Carvana, up. Carvana, right? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Yeah, it's Carvana. You know, mm -hmm. it's 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 you know it's a, it's a business that and, and you know selling you know cars out of gumball machines, uh, which is. I'm not suggesting it's a bad business. Its economics are yet to be proven, and so those stocks you know, became very, very inflated and reached. I mean, you know, the stock you know declined you know 90% more, you know, from its peak to its trough. So Google was never Alphabet was never inflated like that. It wasn't. Uh, what about Meta, which you also own? It, look, it was not. That was not inflated in that same way either. I just don't want to paint. I don't want to paint tech stocks with this brush that because it's a, a tech company, it's inflated in valuation. Right, except the you know again, uh, right. The, but the, they were kind of conflated as the you know the mega cap, the fangs. Uh, so there you are. And it, sure, but a lot like, of these things, a lot of these companies, and not not, not focusing on any particular one. Some of these companies we bought at points in time, you know, when they were when they were when they'd fallen off. Right. And, you know, you know, fallen out of favor. Mm -hmm. You know, Meta, the Cambridge, you know, most Facebook at the time, you know, Cambridge Analytica scandal. There's definitely these points. Netflix well off of its highs, and Google back in 2011. So we weren't buying these stocks at peaks. You've got about 60 stocks in the portfolio today. So how does one of those companies make the cut? What's the process that you and your team go through? We spend a lot of time just analyzing these businesses, and to make the cut, you know, the better quality business with that offers the better growth over the next five to ten years that it's trading at the least expensive valuation. Attractive businesses at attractive prices. Give me an example of, of a company that kind of epitomizes the, the process that FBA Crescent goes through that you hold now. Every business requires a little bit of a different analysis. There's different you know, performance variables that will, will drive these businesses. But one of the reasons why we were looking at, at Carvana was because we, you know, we own a small position in CarMax. Mm -hmm. And you know, CarMax is, is the largest used car retailer in the United States. And, and it's a business that's, that, that, that's really got two parts. They, they sell used cars, and there's two components to that, retail and wholesale. And they also, they also have a finance business uh, where they will lend against the cars that they sell. They only have 5% or so of the, of, the, of the market of, call it, there's 40-ish million used cars sold every year. There's 20 million or so uh, used cars are kind of that fall in that, call that you know, zero to 10 year you know, range. And in that zero to 10 year range is really their sweet spot for retail. And they've got 5% or so market share. So we think there's a lot of runway for them to continue to grow you know, in that business. So we spend a lot of time talking to the company, talking to competitors, you know, talking to, you know, looking at the Carvanas of the world as an example, looking at the at, at competitors. And, and, and I started looking at this company back in I think I think I first visited them in 2016. We didn't start buying them until a year and a half ago or so, buying the stock, you know. And so because it took some price, time because of price. Because price of you right. know because because the price was because the price was right, and we yeah. also had a better understanding of what the business could be in the future too. We liked we liked the we thought their growth rate was somewhat finite because they were dependent upon you know these physical retail locations. And one of the things that changed, you know, was that they you know, it was the ability to, you know, sell cars online. And so now you can buy a car from CarMax, you can start the transaction, you know, in the store and end it online, have it delivered to you, or you can start it online and end it in the store. I just sold a car to CarMax uh, two weeks ago, and I was out of there inside of 50 minutes, having started the transaction online. And so I think, well, I don't think that the number of used cars are, you know, sold in the United States you know, you know, it is going to necessarily increase and could even decrease. Uh, I do think that 
there's a lot of runway for these this company to expand its market share. Now that said, you know the stock's you know jumped up dramatically. It's up, it's up you know 50% from its low. It's not as attractive as it was, you know, um, you know last year. But it you know I think where they can be in you know looking out over the next five to ten years could be very attractive. I mean I think they could earn a lot more money than they are than they're earning today. You don't make a determination of you know, you're going to have X percentage of cash, uh, but again you know you're you're but it's helped you. Uh, in mitigating your downside risk and protecting the portfolio. It's offered a smoother journey mm -hmm. for those investors that care about the journey. I mean, look, owning an index fund can be a, a great thing to own, right? If you can, you know, or an ETF where you, you know, got low fees and you get the market, you buy the market, you get the market's return, fantastic. But you have to, again, have to ask yourself what your psychology is. Can you withstand as an investor, you know, the bumps that are in, inevitably going to occur along the way? There's going to be some significant drawdowns. Does that drawdown precipitate an action? Does it cause you to sell at exactly the wrong time? So I, I, not everybody can handle that. Now, it's important that as people look at the markets, as they look to invest, they're mindful of their own psychology. So how would you describe the type of investors that should own FPA Crescent Fund? And what role does it have in a, you know, a broad, diversified portfolio? The way I we use it for ourselves is we think of it as kind of a in a hub and a hub and spoke strategy. It's a it's a core holding that, mm -hmm. as, as you've as you've you know commented on, you know has historically generated an equity rated return and avoided permanent impairments of capital. And for that, for the, if that's the goal of of somebody as an as an investor, then it makes sense to put that in as this as kind of as this hub. And then on the spokes, you can go and do other things that you know more. Uh, specific to an asset class or region, you know, et cetera. The, the protection that you get from your security selection, that, you know, that uh, the, the margin of safety that you build in, how much has that protected the portfolio as well on the downside? Uh, you know, it, it, it depends on the moment in time. The securities did not do very well in, in the great financial crisis, but we were so pulled back that our exposure was so low that it didn't impact the portfolio horribly because our, our net exposure was so low and we had some we had more shorts on at that point in time, you know, in the portfolio. But other times, you know, look I think the important point I would share is that our equity selection on a gross basis mm -hmm. has over many years outperformed the market on average, the MSCI Aqui particularly since 2011 when it became a, a, you know, a, a pertinent benchmark for the fund. One of the things uh, that also seems to be notable um, um, about your portfolio is its low turnover. If you own quality businesses, your turnover, you know, quality, sustainably growing businesses that don't reach a point of uh, excessive valuation, uh, then you know, turnover should, you know, should be low. It should be lower in the future than it was in the last, you know, in the beginning, simply because if you're a value investor, and you know, the way I used to be where I'm looking for an asset at a discount, if you buy an asset at 50 cents at 50 cents in the dollar and that asset, you know, increases in price and that discount narrows to 80 cents in the dollar, then you trade out of it and you have to go and find something different to buy. Mm -hmm. You know, but if you own Google for, you know, as long as it doesn't reach, as I said, this excessive valuation, like the... Carvana example, which did reach that excessive valuation, then you can own it for a lot of years in a very tax-efficient fashion. You're known as a contrarian investor as well, and you know one of the 
the lessons learned uh, over the years has been uh, don't run with the crowd, operate with a variant view, as you said. So um, how are you applying the variant view in the portfolio today? The portfolio today, I don't think, expresses such a, a terribly unusual view. I think a year ago, or we, a year and a half ago, we didn't own these tech stocks that were inflated in price. You know, that really um, um, did show up then. And it does show up in smaller ways today, but not anything that's so significant. You know, we bought some busted convertible bonds in the tech space, and we own those in the portfolio, where the credit investor you know, um, the debt investor had not really bought into, you know, these unsecured convertible bonds of some of these tech companies, the idea of owning them, and we right. were comfortable doing that. And so that was, that's one example of having a, a more of a variant view, but I don't think there's a, a large overarching theme that, that you could point to in the portfolio today, other than cash. We are in a new era of higher interest rates, higher inflation than we've been in the last, you know, 10 years or so. So how has that impacted your portfolio and and the opportunities that that you see or the lack of opportunities that you see what difference has it made well i think that the a lot of people say it will show me target values on a mm -hmm. given company predicated on where that company or that sector has traded over the on average over the last decade and my pushback on that is we are dealing with you know, we've just gone through not a generational low in interest rates, but the all-time historic low from the beginning of time, low, low level of interest rates. And there was no way that wasn't going to inflate multiples across the globe. I mean, when your cost of capital is, is zero or negative, the value of an asset in theory could be infinite, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that one, what we are mindful of is like making sure that we don't get anchored to just be something traded at a at a EBITDA multiple or a, or a PE or whatever measure you want to look at at, you know, at some higher level in the past that we're not just going to count on the fact that it'll get back to that level. And so that's where higher, you know, level of sustainable level of interest rates um, and, and, you know, will, will have an impact. But where interest rates go is, is, is anybody's guess. We're not really that qualified, you know, to you know make that decision. But should rates remain high, inflation remain you know, relatively robust, I think that uh, people have to be prepared for not to get to some of the uh, multiples that companies have traded at in the past. And in 2014, you were very concerned about government debt and inflation, and you know, you you had some small investments in farmland. How concerned are you now about government debt now that it's you know in multiples from what it was? I'm not any less concerned than I was for sure, given that there's more debt today at you know the federal, state, and local levels. However, you know the difference between government debt and corporate debt, you know, is 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 that governments have a printing press, federal governments have printing presses, and you also have you know you have taxation you know capabilities. You you can kick the can down the road for a lot longer to, and to try and make an investment determination because of that and try and you know bring that thought of all those debts say okay well what's the impact going to be over the short term it's 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 beyond you know the scope of what we're really capable of uh, of, of being able to execute on um, so but we are mindful that said that that with all of this debt the cheapest way out of a of a highly levered situation at the at the federal level is to is to inflate your way out of it.
And so that's why I don't think with all the actions that are being taken and that will, I think are probably you know, likely to continue to be taken that you know, we won't see anything but more inflation or some you know, sustained level of inflation in the future. And so what does that do to, to, you know, to interest rates? You know, becomes, you know, it's hard to keep rates, you know, bring them as low as they were, you know, if that ends up being true. But I think the logical, the logical path is really to inflate our way out of the debt problem. So what do you do knowing that? Stocks, I mean, stocks arguably are inflation hedges. I mean, I mean the value, you know, with the multiple one puts on those stocks, you know, will fluctuate based upon, you know, on interest rates. I'll also lose you present value stream of cash flows out into the future and, and put a terminal value on it out at some point in the future. And if rates are lower, your, your value, your stub value today is going to be, you know, uh, it'll be higher. But if you have a good business that's got, you know, unit growth in front of it, pricing power available to it, then I think it's a pretty nice inflation hedge. Stephen Romick, thanks so much for all your time and thanks for joining us on WealthTrack. Thanks. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At the close of every wealth talk, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is one of Stephen Romick's primary investment lessons from 30 years running FBA Crescent. It is don't run with the crowd. As difficult as it is to go against the investment herd, frequently the best investments are those that aren't working at the moment that are unpopular. Romick lost 90% of his assets to redemptions during the end of the tech bubble by not investing in the dot-com craze, only to massively outperform the market for the next three years. He and his team bought into the COVID sell-off when many thought the world was ending and reaped the benefits afterwards. Going against the herd, buying when others are selling, selling when others are buying, and doing nothing in between is part of Romick and other great investors' consistent strategies. Well, next week, Muni veteran Robert DeMella assesses the health of the municipal bond market after last year's big sell-off. Opportunities and risks will be our focus. We invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. And we thank you for watching. Have a fantastic weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.